start with a little bit of background. Sophocles is, was always regarded both in the ancient world and since the Renaissance as one of the great writers in our history. One of my first popular lectures on the classics, I took up the subject, they always, the fact that they always portray Sophocles as a progressive liberal in textbooks, when he's obviously an arch-reactionary. He was a patriotic Athenian of uh, a high social class, and he uh, served his country in civil magistracies, and also he was on the board of generals and served with Pericles, not somebody that he particularly uh, liked, it would seem. There, are, there we have anecdotal evidence that Sophocles backed the more conservative party led by Cimon, son of Miltiades. Miltiades. And um, Sophocles uh, was from, from his earliest plays, he had became one of the, the most successful playwrights at Athens, as, and he, uh, he put on play after play, you know, 110, 112, uh, of which, of course, we have only seven, three of which were uh, put into school books down to the fall of Constantinople. Um, if, I, if you had to pick, you know, like five writers from the ancient world that were you had that everybody had to read so as not to be a savage. Oh. You'd pick Plato and Virgil and Sophocles and uh, I don't know the rest might be up for grabs, but he would be on any short, short, short list because of not only his influence but also his uh, his brilliance. Does anybody have any questions about Sophocles, his career, etc.? I mean, I'm happy to answer them, but uh, before we go on to the, um, you know, the, the, the story of the, and the background of the play. He, uh, one thing I should say is that he was known, despite, despite people writing books about what a, what a progressive he was, he was known as a very, a deeply religious person. So that when they decided in Athens to bring the cult of Asclepius, the healer god, into Athens, there had been a little shrine on the sl south slope of the Acropolis in a cave, but nothing really impressive. And so they decided to bring Asclepius to Athens. So they, they, they built the temple, and they, but they brought the cult image first. And so before the temple was built, they needed a place to house the cult image of, of Asclepius. So Sophocles used, you know, to, at some personal inconvenience, I would think, he, he housed the god in his house. <laughs> and after his death, he was revered as a hero under the name Dexios, the receiver. Now, Dexios, excuse me, the receiver. Now, this is sort of interesting because when Oedipus goes into the other world, he knows that he will be not worshipped, but revered as a hero. Now this word hero, is, it's, it's an important word for both for the life of Sophocles and for Greek religion and for this play. A hero, a heros, 
is not simply, you know, you're my hero, so somebody who stands up and fights and does brave things. A hero is somebody who has so been blessed or done such, such great things in his life that, like a saint, after his death, he does not become a god, but after his death, he is given uh, honors. Now, to, to the gods, you have a, you have a, the you know, gods of the sky, of gods of Mount Olympus, you have a, you have a, an altar out in the open air, and you burn sacrifices. Whereas for, for a hero, you, uh, there are urns with holes in them, and you pour offerings into the earth, because they're not gods, they, they're underground. Thank you. But they are, they have power, like that, the way a, a dead saint has power. And so Oedipus, after death, this is, this, is, this is something you have to understand. He is like in the Middle Ages where they would fight over the bones of a saint because the bones would confer power to the local community. Oedipus has this power. And there are a couple of people, you know, were, had that, uh, Brasidas, the, uh, the uh, Spartan general in the Peloponnesian War, was revered as a hero, and Sophocles, Sophocles, because of his religious piety, had heroic status, saintly status. So we're dealing with somebody who took his religion very, very seriously. And if you've read the Oedipus Rex, you will remember that the whole play turns on two skeptical wise guys, that is Oedipus and his wife and mother, Jocasta, who say, religion is bunk. You don't have to worry about it. And, and the chorus sings this beautiful ode about someone once said the gods don't exist or don't care about us. And this, if these people are unpunished, then there is no reason for us to dance in this religious celebration, which is a Greek tragedy. So we're dealing, we're dealing in the case of Sophocles and in the case of Greek tragedy. This is not just entertainment on the stage. This is a religious liturgy. That was done every year, uh, you know, at the uh, festival, the Greater Dionysia in, in Athens. And it was very much a religious festival, so this is very much all, all, especially all of Aeschylus and Sophocles are deeply religious plays, as are the best plays of Euripides. Okay. Now the Oedipus story goes way back in uh, Greek tradition. Uh, the, and of course, there are many different versions because the Greeks did not feel it necessary to be at all consistent. Every, and, and when you're a poet, when you're a poet, you just take whatever. You take whatever version or make up a variation on a version. That you uh, that you can uh, can write. So uh, in the original the original version, you know, there, we know the story of a king of Thebes, Oedipus. His father Laios was uh, king of Thebes, and there was a, a, a prophecy 
that if he if he and his wife gave birth to a son, the son would grow up and kill his father, and maybe in, in, in most versions also marry the mother. So in Sophocles' take on it, they then, uh, ex instead of killing the child, which would be infamous for the Greek, they didn't, you see, we, we talk about how the uh, Today's abortionists are like the ancients who killed children. No, they didn't. They exposed them. And so that meant that anybody who wanted a child would pick it up. This means that very few exposed children in the ancient world died. They were always picked up either by a couple who wanted them or even by a slave dealer. But they weren't, they weren't, they didn't die. And the reason, one of the reasons they didn't kill them is because they had a horror of taking human life. And so it's, it's, so instead of uh, killing a child you can't rear, you say, well, I have no guilt. I'll expose the child. If it lives, it lives. If it dies, it dies. It's something like, it's something like Rome in the Roman Empire. These children were picked up immediately because you, it's like today a fire station. Everybody knows you can drop off an unwanted baby at a fire station or, or there are designated points. And so in Rome, everybody knew where, you know, you, you wait at dusk and somebody dumps a baby and the baby's snatched within seconds. But they wanted Oedipus dead. So he was given to a, a retainer and he went, goes off to expose him in the mountains to die, but he gives him he gives him to a shepherd, and the shepherd takes him to Corinth, where he is raised as the son of the king and queen, an heir. So this means that Oedipus grows up not knowing who he is. There seems to be some evidence in, in the Sophocles version of the story that some people knew that he couldn't be really the son of the king of Corinth, and so there were discussions or chat, and so Oedipus runs off to, to the Oracle of Delphi to find out what's going on, and he's told that he is fated to kill his father and marry his mother, so he doesn't go back to Corinth. On the way home, on the, so he decides he'll go in a different direction. At a place where three roads meet, he runs into an entourage. There's a herald and uh, an old man with a driver and uh, and several other people, maybe five, six people. And the, old, the arrogant old man, who is Oedipus' father, Laius, the king of Thebes, won't yield to him, but he's an arrogant young man. And one thing leads to another, and the, the I think the driver takes a swipe at him with his ox goad or whatever, <laughs> and Oedipus responds in such anger that he he says, in the play, the Oedipus Tyrannus, the Oedipus Rex, he says, I killed them all. Now, he clearly didn't because one of them survived as a witness. So, in the... Uh, in the Oedipus Rex, Oedipus take, really is clearly guilty of a road rage killing. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and there's really not much. Okay, he didn't know it was his father, but you you kill a distinguished old man because he you know he he won't give way to you. This is uh, this is this is not uh, under Athenian law. He was guilty. You know, 
and it, and uh, it, it's very clear. I've studied Athenian homicide law in detail. I think I think I can safely say that the story Sophocles gives in the Oedipus Rex is somebody who has an out of control bad temper. Of course, Oedipus doesn't. You know, in in Sophocles' version, he he is uh, he has to find the killer of his father Laius because a plague is raging in Athens. And of course, in fact, when the play was put on, there was a plague raging in Athens because the Peloponnesian War meant a lot of people were packed into the town and it was unsanitary. And uh, it, it, I think it's not unfair to blame the political leader who brought Athens into this war, namely Pericles. Uh, the, the great leader of the Athenian democracy. Sophocles, we have lots of evidence, did not like Pericles, disapproved of him, and I would suggest that in that play, Oedipus is a kind of Pericles, an intellectual who has rejected religion, thinks he can solve all the problems himself, and therefore he runs into grief. He brings a, he brings a plague and then destruction on himself and his family. So, what happens then? He says, I want to go into exile. And they say no. But eventually they feel it's better to be rid of the old man, although he's not that old. I mean, he's in his 20s. So they throw him out. And his daughter and Creon, his brother-in-law, becomes the ruler until his sons can grow up, Ateocles and Polynices. But they apparently... In Sophocles' view, do nothing to stop him from being sent into exile. So his only comfort is in his daughters, one of whom, Antigone, uh, of course made famous by an early play of Sophocles, where she, she insists on burying her brother. Uh, Antigone follows him around, but Ismene is also loyal. Now, in the general story, which Sophocles assumes that everybody knows, in the general story, um, the, eventually the two brothers, Ateocles and Polynices, become the ruler. In one version, they're twins born at the same time, and so nobody has priority. Sophocles, in this play, has Polynices the elder. I mean, obviously, you know, twins can't be born exactly at the same time. So, uh, Polynices is the first to emerge, and he says, I am the only king, but his, meanwhile, his slightly younger brother, Ateocles, has thrown him out. And so, uh, Polynices goes, makes a royal alliances with the king of Argos and other heroes, and this is one of the great events in Greek mythology, early pre-Greek history, and this the expedition of the seven against Thebes. It's sort of like the uh, the Magnificent Seven Greek style. <laughs> and uh, they attack Thebes, and every all four there are seven Theban champions to oppose the seven foreign champions, and they all kill each other. Include and the two brothers, Ateocles and Polynices, locked in mortal combat, kill each other. And this is the subject of a very great play that's not much studied anymore, called uh, Aeschylus Seven Against Thebes. And it is a magnificent uh, piece of uh, symbolic drama.
Sophocles, in, 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 in the old version, Oedipus curses his children, his two sons, because they mistreat him. And when he's still living in Thebes, they, if, do you know what the expression to give somebody the cold shoulder means? You know, it doesn't mean somehow to, to abuse, you know, ignore them. It means that when they're sitting at your dinner table, you give them the cold piece of the joint of meat. Okay, you treat them with a lack of respect. Well, Antiochus and Polynices apparently, give, in the old version of the story, they give the old man the cold shoulder. He kicks the table over and curses them, which is a way of, of beginning a curse, and curses them to eternal strife and death and, uh, and everything. Now this is a this is very effective, I think, uh, to threaten children about treating their parents properly. <laughs> but Sophocles doesn't accept the story. In fact, I, I will we'll stop here for just a second. Sophocles replaces this version with uh, uh, the, the curse only comes when they have decided to go to war, and especially Polynices has gone to war decided to bring these champions in and attack Thebes. Antiochus will be the defender of Thebes. But uh, Oedipus says, you will kill each other in battle. And I know I curse you. So they're cursed for their willingness to engage in this internecine strife, not because of the way they treated him. This is this is a change. Does, does this have any... Anybody want to understand how this... What does this mean? Is this a change? What, why, what is the significance of this change? Well, we'll talk about this later, but I mean, one of the significances is, obviously, that we're not dealing just with symbolic guilt or lack of attention to the old man. We're dealing with a political question, and that is people willing to tear their country apart in a civil war. They bring the curse on themselves. It's not just an it's not just a gesture of irritation from a mean old man. Now, um, before talking about the play exactly, I just want to make one uh, one or two small remarks about the date. This is the last play Sophocles wrote. Yes, I was just going to say this: the time when Antigone is talking to Polynices, and she said, "Give this up." And his answer is, I can't. Yes. Because I, I've made arrangements with all these people, and I'll be looked like... I'm invested in I'm, Yeah, and I'd be seen as a coward, and he means he'd never be able to approach them for help again. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it is, maybe we won't be able to get back to this, but there are many parts of this play that, re, that echo earlier plays of Sophocles on the theme, that is the Antigone and the Oedipus Rex. Some things don't. I mean, his... Oedipus' version in this play of his guilt, he says, I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything that everybody else wouldn't do. In the Oedipus Rex, he is, it's clear he is guilty. But uh, one of the things that's, that really is eerie is you see uh, Antigone saying, please don't do this, and he says, I have to, I have to. And Polynices is not, a, is not portrayed as a bad person. He's not some raging maniac. He's, he's, he's mistaken, he's misguided. And then he says, well, okay, this may be the this will be the last time I'll ever see you. And there's only so much you can do for me now. But when I'm dead, please bury me. 
This is very chilling because in Sophocles, maybe his earliest surviving play, the Antigone, of course, Antigone is killed by Creon, her uncle. She's buried alive for this because she buries her brother, who is the enemy of the state, according to Creon. And so near the end of this play, you have this very sad foreshadowing of a play Sophocles had written 35 years earlier. The play is, there, there are some disputes over it. The play was clearly written very late. We know it was produced in like, I don't know, 404, 405. It's the last play produced. Some, some uh, scholars have tried to suggest that it was written 20 years earlier or 10 years earlier and held. Greeks didn't do this kind of thing. So it was, it was written at the end of his life. There is a story which uh, people have questioned, although I think the greatest scholars, like uh, Sir Richard Jebb, have said, well, it may be difficult, but it's not impossible. And the story is that Sophocles was sued by his sons for being non compos mentis, real loyalty, real gratitude from your kids. And they were mad because Sophocles had an illegitimate son. He couldn't give this son a share of his, the family wealth, but he could sort of siphon off sort of his, part of his income, part of his acquired wealth, presents he'd been given, and he could make a portion for the son, for the illegitimate son. And so the regular sons were angry. And so they sued him. You know, he's an old man. Gee, I mean, he's older than I am. How old can that be? <laughs> and uh, so they took him to court. And, of course, there's a Athenian rule, which is you have to get at least, I don't know, one-fourth of the votes in such a case, or, 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 or your, the, the, it's a nuisance suit, and, you have to be, and you're, you're punished. You lose your property, you go to exile. So Sophocles' basic only defense of himself is he read this ode on how miserable it is to be an old man to show... Well, A, it's a pretty moving thing. It's one of the masterpieces of ancient literature. And two, it uh, pretty much wised the jury up about, uh, about the sons. They didn't get any votes, virtually. And so they had to go into exile. It seems particularly appropriate that a play, which is about, a large part of this play is about gratitude and ingratitude. Sophocles, uh, uh, Oedipus' sons, are, do not treat him properly, do not have gratitude, the, the, the proper feeling of respect toward those who put you on this earth. Uh, whereas Oedipus himself, who has uh, been portrayed at the very beginning, he's, he's outrageously angry and resentful uh, because he's been treated with disrespect. You know, he, he had a life and he's been taken away from it. And, uh, but he learns to love the Athenians and their city, and he um, becomes an honorary Athenian. And so his gratitude toward Theseus and Athens is the counterpart to, uh, it's, the, it's the negation of the uh, nastiness that he's been treated to. Well, we've talked about the, the, okay, let's talk just briefly about the characters of the plot. 
The, in a Greek play, originally there was only one actor and, uh, and a chorus and a chorus leader. This gives you somewhat restricted you know, ability <laughs> to have much drama. But what it meant is the chorus would sing about the, about the historical background of the exploits, and then, like in the Persians, the actor would come out and said, oh, woe is me, all these terrible things have happened to me, and then they try to console him. Aeschylus adds a second actor in which you can have dialogue. And then Sophocles, it seems, is the first one to add a third actor so that you can have, you know, three-way conversation add a much deeper drama. Aeschylus borrows the, you know, understands this quite immediately, and in he briefly uses a third actor in in uh, in the in the, uh, the libation barrows, the coethra. So we have we have this uh, we have this a limited number of characters, and of course, if you have like seven or eight characters, but you still only have three actors to play them. So you got to arrange it. It's a ballet. Get them on, get them off, get them on again. So obviously Oedipus is on stage almost all the time. So he is the main character. And he's the Oedipus we know from the earlier play. He's intellectual. He's arrogant. He considers himself superior to everybody else. Talking to King Theseus of Athens, he starts telling him, giving him you know, right and wrong, and Theseus says, maybe you should back off. <laughs> I'm the king here. You don't give me advice. And Oedipus says, well, maybe if you hear my whole story, you'll understand. He hasn't changed. We have this weird idea in the modern world that people can change. <laughs> they can't change their character. Maybe they, have a, maybe they can have a stroke, but they can't really change their character. They are what they are. Now, Paul, St. Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, was a persecuted son of a bitch that couldn't get along with anybody. Mm -hmm. He becomes a Christian. Does he become a nice person? No! <laughs> he's, still, he's still Saul. You know, he's still tell, sticking it in and breaking it off. Of course, he's found a new way of behaving. He treats, you know, he can treat people with respect. He says, oh, I am the least of Christians, the worst of sinners. Oh, yeah, you still have to be better than the rest of us, right? But, <laughs> even when you're worse, you have to be better. So, my point is, and in the ancient world, they did not believe in this notion that people change. So, for example, Tacitus, in talking about Tiberius, say, well, some people think he actually changed, that he was a nice guy in the beginning and then only became rotten. And Tacitus says, people don't change. People don't. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for people to reform their manners and things like that. It is, obviously, and people can have a religious conversion. But your basic temperament that you've been working on, on building up till the age of 35 is not somehow going to disappear. You know the, the famous uh, Balzac line that after 40, every man is responsible for his own face? Because... You know, we've been working on this. And if you're a nasty, petty, brutish person, you know, that's the way you look. Picture of Dorian Gray. Most of us don't have it up in the attic. We wear it. <laughs> so Oedipus is Oedipus. Antigone is still Antigone. She is loyal, devoted, loving. 
uh, lo love is the, the dominant note in her character in the early play, and it, and it still is here. Creon is pretty much Creon, that is, bullying, brutish. I think he's worse here than he is in the Antigone. Because in the Antigone, he is trying to be a responsible leader, and we understand why he makes these mistakes. Here, he just, it seems to, he enjoys power and wants to push people around. And uh, the other characters, Theseus is very regal, very royal. And, and, of course, he is the number one Athenian hero whom they were trying to build up because Heracles, remember, Heracles, or Hercules, is the ancestor of the kings of Sparta. He seems to lose prestige in Athens in the 5th century. We were, uh, Gail and I were just in Athens, and we were looking at, you know, the old temples on the Acropolis, have a lot about Hercules and Athena and Hercules' exploits in defending civilization, especially the Gigantomachy, you know, the, the battle between the gods and the giants. When you get to the, uh, when you get to the, uh, the famous Parthenon, their, their battle of the gods and giants has one figure of Hercules, only one. Every other god has an equal role. So there are, I think I counted 15 gods or something in addition. So, but why, but, but again, why would you want, it would be like uh, in, say, in, in World War II, you had some great German hero in American history. Let's just not talk about it. And by the way, let's change the name of Berlin Street to Rockford Avenue. Let's, we're no longer going to eat German donuts. Let's call them French donuts. You know. So all of this went on. So I think a little bit of that comes out. So anyway, Theseus, he was already a great Attic hero, but he takes over most of the qualities of Hercules, except he is rational, compassionate, and controlled, because these are the values that the Athenians most uh, prized. Well, why don't we take a break, and then we can just we can more have a discussion of uh, the play. I've talked much too much already, and then we can talk about what the play, we can have chat about what the play is all about. I want to begin the discussion of the play, and I'm happy to get as technical as anybody wants to about any aspect of it. But I'd like to begin by asking uh, Dr. Livingston. We presume. Uh, he, who told me in the break that this was always his favorite Greek tragedy. Would you like to tell us why? Uh, I, I think that you know, from the first time I read the play when I was in my teens, uh, I was taken, I was just so moved by the relationship of, of Oedipus to you know, between Oedipus, his daughter, the, the, the king of the, uh, the the king of Athens, rather. Yeah. Uh, that 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 here is someone. Uh, you know, I I read Oedipus Rex, uh, but to see the Oedipus Rex that uh, uh, being reconciled to the gods was just deeply moving to me. I think that was, and, and I was moved in a way that none of the other. Greek plays actually move me, the, you know, to the socks, as they say. Yeah, yeah. The um, I had uh, I had 
this has never been, if I had to pick my top ten favorite plays, this would not have been, uh, Greek plays, this would not have been among them. It's clearly, uh, first of all, you have to ask yourself, why do we have this play? Except in the case of Euripides, where we have an accidental manuscript with some plays from like Epsilon to, I don't know, Lambda, we have, we have, or we, we have a, an accidental sampling of Euripides' plays, in addition to the schoolbook. For, for Sophocles, we have a schoolbook selection. So clearly, I mean, this is like saying, well, what if you picked seven plays of Shakespeare, what would they be? And they would be the plays that everybody reads, you know. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Macbeth, you know, etc. And so this is, this play clearly moved ancient audiences. And so you, you, you know, you, and I, I think the compassion and the friendship that you just, that you allude to, that's got to be a, 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 a big part. And also, it gives, as we would now say in psychobabble terms, it gives closure to poor Oedipus. You know, we've seen him in Sophocles, we've seen him remembered in the Antigone, on stage as perhaps the most brilliant character in the history of drama in the Oedipus Rex. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing that good, in, in, I think, in Shakespeare. Uh, which I, I, I don't mean to take anything away from Shakespeare, he's a very great writer. But, uh, and then now we see this, uh, this man uh, and coming to some kind of reconciliation and returning, after all, this is a man who despised religion. And Sophocles had, crit had obviously implicitly criticized all religious skeptics in Athens through his portrayal of Oedipus. Um, one of the... Well, the thing, what, when the play begins, you know, Oedipus takes refuge in a shrine. In a, in a, what's the shrine? What are the god? What are the? What is the divinity worshipped in this shrine? Poseidon. Well, it's said. It, oh, the Furies. Yes, the Furies, the Arinues. So, and this brings us, of course, back to the conclusion of Aeschylus' great masterpiece, the Aristia, because you know you forget that these grim, these semni, as they're sometimes called, the awesome ones. It's funny to use the word awesome in, a, in its real meaning, the awesome one. Um, and, um, and of course, this is very appropriate. But he says, ah, oh, I was told from the beginning, I was told by Apollo that I would end my days, you know, here, that this is significant. Well, why? They're, they're, they're revenge fiends. He is a revenge fiend in himself. So there he is. So he goes. So... One of the themes throughout the play is going to be a kind of transmutation of base revenge, of lead revenge, into golden revenge. He, it's no longer personal for Oedipus by the end of the play. It's something, you know, he is the, he, he represents, you know, justice and decency, etc. So, uh, the uh, and one of the of course one of the the fundamental notions in uh, popular Greek mind is the notion of pollution. Pollution 
agos, as uh, <coughs> the most common word. Agos means it's like the moral equivalent of a physical plague. To get polluted, you don't have to do anything morally wrong. You have to be, if you kill somebody accidentally, you still have agos. If you, if a, if a goat butts somebody and who falls and dies, the goat is put on trial, condemned to death, and killed. If a roof tile falls and kills somebody, the roof tile is ritually condemned and thrown into the sea. So for, now, these, we're not dealing with primitive people, because the Greeks were perfectly capable of distinguishing between intentional and non-intentional homicide. But their legal system still had re religious, you know, undertones. Remember that the uh, criminal uh, homicide cases, murder cases, were tried by the court of the Areopagus, which is a religious court. And uh, and it's not treated as a criminal trial because there's because there's pollution. You and if a criminal is left unpunished, the pollution infects the whole city. And so that's the setting of the Oedipus Tyrannus, where they're suffering from a plague because they have in their community a murderer who has not been punished and ritually cleansed. So. The Arinues, the, the Furies, the Eumenides, are the divine powers that preside over this, the need for taking revenge and for cleansing. And so this is absolutely uh, where he belongs. Yes? When, um, when Oedipus in Oedipus, Oedipus Rex finally sees what he has done, he demands that he be expelled from the city. So, um, uh, because of the... Yeah, the pollution and... Uh, so Creon, throwing him out later, yeah. is, is not just a... it's not a necessarily an evil act. Well, what Oedipus says is, what Oedipus says is that, look, I wanted to go and you wouldn't let me. And then when I had reconciled myself, and obviously you'd been purified, various things, because you had to be purified. When I, when, I, when I finally realized this was not a good thing, then you wouldn't let me stay. So he's been frustrated at every point. And, it, and I think it's a power struggle, because Creon enjoys being the ruler. And then the sons want to be the ruler. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Yeah, who yeah. wouldn't? Yeah. Oedipus has the sense has the sense that he's not guilty. Yeah, I mean he, he's he's uh, in some sense a victim of uh, uh, situations over which he has no control. Yeah. Uh, and this again, this is a change from the previous play. The previous play, his own narrative convicts him. Whereas here, he says, look, uh, you know, I was only defending myself in a case of aggression. I didn't know it was my father. You can't, and, 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 you know, I'm the, the gods have been playing with me for reasons I don't understand. Uh, may I ask a question here that 
Sure. I don't know if this sounds silly or not, but it's something that's been troubling me for all these many years, but I haven't pursued it either. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I have brought it up, people have sometimes, yes. you know, it's just, you know, it's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. It, it's just that um, he is fated to kill his father and marry his mother. He kills somebody who's obviously older than he is. He never seems to ask who it is. Yeah. He marries somebody who, this lady does seem to be a bit older. He must seem to be a bit older, and he never seems to question it. Uh, do you have any, anything on that at all? I think, I think that, um, again, every, every Greek play is, they take traditional material and then they shape it the way they want to. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in this play, if you just read the description and, and the dialogue, how old is Oedipus? 70, 80, 90? Pretty old. How old is he really if you construct it according to the myth? 40? 40. 40. 40. 40. Early 40s. He is, uh, you know, look, look, okay. At the end of the Oedipus Rex, when his children are able to all walk and talk, it seems, you know, so let's say Antigone is four, let's say she's five or four. Um, Oedipus, we is a very young man. Let's just say he's twenty-five. Now Antigone is of marriageable age. What do we guess? Eighteen, twenty. Yes. Because she's going to go back to uh, Thebes and then marry uh, marry Haemon, the son of Creon. So, gee. <laughs> This doesn't give us much room. So he's he's anywhere from forty to forty-five, lower probably than higher. So, but but he's you know he's older than any of the old guys in this room in the play. Okay, he's been worn down by circumstance, and he's as he, in fact he's as old as Sophocles in the play. And Sophocles is over eighty. So, so does, does this bother Sophocles? No. Not at all. No, I mean, this is material I can use. I can create a, a story out of it. So, it, it, and I think that's what we're doing. He never, and in the context of, he always thought that he was this, in, in the Oedipus Rex, he thinks he's the son of Polybus and Merope of Corinth. So, it, maybe it wouldn't occur to him. Wouldn't occur to him. Yeah, wouldn't occur to him. And certainly, for Sophocles, it doesn't occur to him. There are a lot of themes in the play, which uh, I don't want to bore you with, there, the, that might uh, help to elucidate, and I'll at least throw one of them, uh, a couple of them on the table. One of them is the notion of honor, team A. We talked about that a little bit in the Odyssey. What he is, uh, in the early part of the play, he's very concerned that he has been deprived of his team A. After all, he's a king, he's a father, he has, uh, he's a kinsman of Creon. He has, he, he's, he's entitled to a certain position in life. He's entitled to be treated with respect. He is not. And, and there's a lot of language about this. And interestingly, in very early in the play, Lai 108, they just, he describes Athens as Timiotati polis. 
the a most honored city. Maybe that's just an accident, but it seems to me that one small theme of the play is he has been robbed like Achilles. He's been robbed of his honor in Thebes, and his honor is being restored in uh, in Athens. Another. Uh, Believe me, stop me at any point, uh, or stop me before I uh, <laughs> before I ruin the evening. Another another theme, a big theme is. Let's, this is this is this is from almost line one. He is an a, a permanent alien, and this is a favorite theme of Sophocles. You see it in the Antigone. She feels herself an alien in her home country. He is an alien, he's an exile. They call him Achos, a man without a country, literally. And he is, uh, he's, uh, has to rely on the people he meets who are Xenoi, strangers. But Xenos, the word for stranger, also means host or guest. So in other words, he is a he. What he needs is to be treated as a xenos, a guest friend of these Athenians. He says in line ninety, he's seeking a xenostasis, a stopping point for an alien, and um, and Antigone explains to him that well, you know, we're outsiders here, we're foreigners, and so. We must listen to what the local citizens say. Now, this is a very interesting because he's an immigrant. He's an immigrant. He's not a Syrian immigrant. <laughs> he's an immigrant, and he and 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 there's a discussion at one point where they say, "Well, it's necessary for somebody who's living in a foreign country like you. You have to." Learn. You have to learn to love what the people here love and hate what they hate. Now, this is quite interesting. This is, in other words, this is a Greek definition of assimilation. You know, we're sorry. You have a religion that hates Jesus Christ and loves Mohammed. I'm sorry. Our civilization hates Mohammed and loves Jesus Christ. Either stay out. Or learn to live the way we live, and and uh, there's there's really uh, no uh, now this is uh, this is the chorus tells Oedipus this in about line one eighty following uh, to love what they love, and uh, so he is a man without a country. He's Achoros. He is a man Apolis without a uh, no Apopolis, a man re rejected from his city. And for the Greeks, this is more, this is a nightmare. I once read that um, when the Chinese read Robinson Crusoe, they are horrified because a man without a country thrust into a land of aliens with these cannibals, they're because, for, you know, if you're Chinese, you're surrounded by a couple of billion people who look like you and talk something like what you talk, 
And I mean, they're completely the idea of the the alienated individual on like Robinson Crusoe on an island makes them horrified. Well, this is closer to the Greek view than our view. You have to have a community in which you're integrated. The other theme, and then I'll shut up. The other theme <laughs> that's related is not only is he a xenos among xenoi, and he and he asked him over and over, "Will you 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 you're my you are now my xenoi? You're my you're not only alien, you're not only strangers, but you're you're my guest friends, my host friends." But so the the word of friend. Now again, we talked about this a little bit in the uh, in the case of the Odyssey. Who are his friends? Well. A Greek would say his best friend is Antigone. Boy, a daughter's not a friend, is it? His second best friend is Ismini, another daughter. His his best other best friend should be Polynices and Teocles and Creon. They're all kinsmen, because for uh, I, we went over this a little bit in the uh, in the case of the Odyssey. The Greek word friend and friendship, the primary category is kinship. In other words, being a, 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 a son, a daughter, a husband, a father, this is the defining characteristic of friendship. And then, of course, it radiates out. You got neighbor, neighbors can be friends. You can have ritualized friendship. But so, a lot of this play is who are who are Oedipus' friends? His friend, his closest among his closest friends, should be his sons. And his brother-in-law, but they're now his enemies. So the Athenian people and their king—they are his friends. And this is, and and and, and he, has, he has found a different a different kind of friendship. And uh, which is for a Greek, it's a diffi it's difficult. And this, remember, this is. This play is written, I, I was suggesting it was maybe written 406, 405, put on maybe 404. This is the end of the Peloponnesian War. The Athenians are losing. Why are they losing? Well, they've got a brilliant uh, Spartan general who's bottling them up. But um, what else? Why, what's the other reason they're losing? Alcibiades well, left them. Well, he's dead. He's gone. He's gone. Yeah. But another reason, an, another big reason is their closest neighbor, Thebes, has been very successful. Thebes had been sort of lazy for the previous 150 years militarily. Now they have a new sort of system, a military system. They're training their people, and they're defeating the Athenians in battle. And they're encroaching, and they're joined. They always hated Athens, and they've joined with the Spartans from the beginning of the war. And in fact, about the time the play is, maybe a year after the play is put on, or maybe the same time, the dating's difficult. But when Athens surrenders to Sparta, it's the Thebans who say, destroy it. Destroy the city. And, uh, and the Spartans uh, say, Lysander says, no, we were allies against the Persians. It would be wrong. It would be wrong. But the, and, and, when um, Oedipus confronts Creon, he says, you come from a decent city. Those people are not like you. In other words, he's saying there are decent people in Thebes. 
It's not. It's not a hypernationalistic play. It's not saying you people are all scum. But we, you know, we once understood you people. We once could work with you people. You're decent people, and and uh, but now your leadership is not. So it's clearly this, and it, because we can't tell the dating, we don't know the circumstances. But but these references to some, and, and why is that significant? Why is the hatred of Thebes significant in the for, in terms of the drama? Why do they want his body? Why does Thebes want his body? Because they'll be blessed, yeah. They're gonna be because whoever has his body will, yeah. And if he, if his body is in Athens, what will happen? He'll be blessed. Yeah. That's right. And and he will he will protect Athens from a Theban invasion. The um, it sound it's it, I, it to some Christians I talk to about these things. It's sometimes they think it's blasphemous, but the fact is that this is not at all alien to a, a Christian way of thinking that somebody stuck in a hole in the ground will love the people who have taken care of him in old age and in death and that he will protect them. And um, we, you know, there are, of course, the Catholics and Orthodox have many saints, but even there's nothing, there's n it really is a point of contact with Greek paganism. There are uh, other themes as well, if I may suggest. Mm. Uh, Please. Uh, I can't make any line references with this copy that I Don't have, worry. But uh, in scene three, uh, Oedipus uh, claims to Theseus uh, the significance of time and the theme of time where he says uh, to Theseus, uh, most gentle son of Aegeus, the immortal gods alone have neither age nor death. All other things, almighty time disquiets. Yeah. Earth wastes away, the body wastes away, faith dies, distrust is born. And then he continues to elaborate upon that. And then uh, I would contend uh, within that same passage, there's yet another theme, and that is the theme to which you've already alluded, Tom, and that is the concept of honor, keeping one's word, where he says, however, there's no felicity in speaking of hidden things. Let me come back to this. Be careful that you keep your word to me, mm -hmm. for if you do, you'll never say of Oedipus that he was given refuse uselessly, or if you say it, the gods have lied. So the idea of yeah. honor, word, all of this comes under, do you think, under the general concept of uh, Greek hospitality, the idea of welcoming strangers? Oh, it's very important. That's, it's right, you're right. Throughout the play, this notion of, uh, and Athens, they say in the play, I don't know if it's true, in fact, I rather doubt it, uh, the claim is made that Athens is particularly hospitable to strangers, to aliens. And the Athenians had this, part of their national mythical history was that when, um, you know, when the Mycenaean citadels fell after the Trojan War, that these, tro these Ionian Greeks came from the Peloponnesus 
and they came to Athens and stayed for a generation or so, and then began the Ionian colonization of the islands and Asia Minor. So Athens became the metropolis, the mother city, because she had given refuge to these people. So Athens is, in its own mythology, it is a place of refuge. And even in, uh, in the time of this play, they were allowing Ionian refugees from war or just people looking for settlement to come in. Now, they were very jealous about citizenship. You know, they didn't give the, even if you fought in battle, etc., they were, they were reluctant to give you citizenship rights, but still, you were pretty well off, considering the historical period, to go to Athens as a, as a, as a Greek alien. But, uh, the other thing, I would say, well, other thing, Bill, Scar this is Bill Scarpacci, who's been talking, Professor <coughs> Scarpacci. Uh, one important thing, uh, you read from this great translation, the Fitz and Fitzgerald translation, which I should have recommended. It's wildly inaccurate if you look at it word by word, line by line, but it's a major work of, I think, 20th century English literature. It is, it is, it is very beautiful, and I, I strongly recommend people not looking to find the literal meaning of every word, but people who want to see a creative and brilliant literary take on the play, and they're they're rarely wrong. I mean, it's not like they're they're making grotesque mistakes that distort the text. And uh, yeah, so the, the this this notion of uh, of uh, oh, and time. Sophocles has the, some of the strangest comments on time. Like he has, I think it's in the uh, is it in the Antigone? He says, "Time that puts all things to sleep." Yep. He has he has this notion that time is a divine force that cannot be resisted. And of course, when you get to be Sophocles' age, you know, you realize, gee, time and gravity rule all things. Your face is sagging, your belly is sagging, you've got to walk with a cane, and, uh, and it's, 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 it's hard, and it's inexorable. <laughs> the Greeks don't fool around. You like we we say, oh well, you know, old age is fun. No, no Greek would have said old. Oh well, it could be just a fun-loving oldster. The Greeks didn't <laughs> fall for that. No. Why? You, vitamins. You, yeah, you're old. Yes. You're tired. No sex. No this. No that. What exactly is this great? You know. They didn't move, and they didn't move into old age homes where people played the piano when they sang forty songs. Can you, can you imagine what will happen about twenty years from now? There'll be, or even 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 now, they're probably doing. You have to listen to Jimi Hendrix in the in the old folks home. <laughs> yes, that's true. So no, the the uh, the, the uh, my dissertation director would say. Uh, you can never let your guard down with the Greeks because they're always going to say something to be maybe unsettle you or disturb you because they have a very hard, cold eye about reality and they rarely uh, give you much uh, baloney. And it's, uh, you know, our American literature and American political life and American journalism is all based on lies. The, the, the Greeks don't give you that. It's not fun to be old, you know, and they're not going to pretend it is. On the other hand, you know, when Sophocles was asked 
about the time he wrote this play. So, well, Sotheby's, I understand you've quit chasing girls. What is it like to have no more sex drive? And he said, obviously that's not a word it could use, agree, but what is it like not to be pursued by Eros? By the, and he said, I have been delivered, liberated from slavery to a terrible <laughs> goddess. <laughs> you know. So, that was Sophocles. You know, um, and one of the great reasons for studying, for reading Greek literature, not only is it the best books ever written in every genre in which they, they created these genres. Not only is it, can you not make it any better, which is embarrassing 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later, you can't write a play this good. Not only, but, but, they don't lie to you, they don't flatter you, they don't tickle you. They say, oh, life can be beautiful, but it's also horrifying. And yet, yes. And yet, it's, uh, I found it really astounding um, the age-old theme of love. Yeah. Uh, again, this is scene eight, in which uh, Oedipus uh, is addressing uh, the chorus, I think. No, he's addressing his children. Uh, it's just a small passage, but the way it's, at least the way it's translated, rather poetic. Children, this day your father is gone from you. All that was mine is gone. You shall no longer bear the burden of taking care of me. I know it was hard, my children, and yet one word frees us of all the weight and pain of life. That word is love. Yeah. Never shall you have more from any man than you have had from me. And now you must spend the rest of life without me. And when I read that, I said, I want that to be my epitaph. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. You know, uh, in the Antigone, she says, uh, they translate this uh, in, uh, in, a, in a, it's loose, but it gets at the heart of the stasis. She says, I was born for love, not hate, when she says to Creel. Now, of course, the word she's using is philia, which we normally translate as friendship. For friendship, this Greek notion of friendship is a sense of belong, indissoluble belonging. You know, it can't be, it should, it can't or shouldn't be broken. And it's the love of a mother for her children, but it can be generalized, well, in this case, a father, and they reward him. I mean, with with this same kind of love, it is. By the way, there are, there, there are dozens and dozens of books written saying that, well, you know, love of children was invented by the Puritans. Nobody had it before. And, you know, and one of my favorites is, you know, men didn't love their wives until the 18th century and blah, blah, blah. So, gee, the story of the Odyssey, here's a guy, he's got Circe, who is a sex pot. Calypso is going to make him a god so they can live forever in eternal sunny youth in Southern California, you know, smoking dope and having sex. And he says, no, I want to go back to my 40-year-old woman. Now, they didn't, they, they didn't have any love. And, the, and again, in Sophocles in particular, of all the Greek writers, I think this deep, compassionate affection, 
the love that, that we Christians learn to call charity. But caritas is not charity. It is, it is dearness. It is, it is Greek philia. It's very, very close. And that's what this play is about, and that's why he learns to love the Athenians. They learn to love him. He learns to accept, he and, he and Theseus accept each other in this love. And then when he goes off on this, this terrifyingly exciting scene at the very end with the thunder crashing, and he's accepted into uh, a different realm, uh, into the world of death, where he will still have power. The still, but what it will his his power will be to love, to love the people who have taken care of him. I'm very glad you brought that up, because that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a key. It's really a key part of the play, which we've only been able to touch upon little thing. The only. Uh, um, one, I'll say one more thing and then we'll shut up. We probably will go off to dinner, etc. But the other, th the one reason I think this play was so popular in the ancient world is it has some of the most beautiful lyric poetry written in the Greek language. Some of these choruses describing Colonus, you know, the nightingales, the trees, the flowers. But not, not in mawkish, romantic language, but extremely tight, beautiful writing. And um, Greeks didn't write much in the way of nature poetry. You may remember in the, what is it, the Phaedrus, so there, there, Socrates says, oh, well, the fountains or the streams are flowing and the birds are, and all of that, but let's get the hell out of here because I can't concentrate on an argument when I'm when we've got all this pretty stuff going on. And in fact, they took they took the beauty of nature for granted. They weren't indifferent to it, but they lived in a very beautiful world. Gail and I went up. Every time I go to Athens, I have one thing I have to do ritually. I walk up to the Pneeks, and I walk up to the Hill of the Muses. Yes. And I walk up, nobody else wants to do this with me usually, because, you know, but there are no museum entrances. You are, you are walking on the sacred ground of the Athenian Republic, and there's practically nobody there, and you could walk around and imagine, okay, this is where the Athenian Assembly was, and here's the speaker's stand, you look over, and then you see the, the local birds. I wanted to see a hoopoe, but uh, which is a which is a funny local bird that, but we did see a lot of magpies, but um, because the Greeks were they didn't they weren't separate from nature the way we are we have to we have to go write a cabin in Wisconsin, the Greeks didn't do that because Athens people are growing crops in the middle of the city it's full of birds and wildlife and it's it's a beautiful place and not to mention all of Attica. But this play has the most tender and beautiful landscape description, written out of affection. You know, uh, Colonus is, I think I read, a kilometer and a half, or maybe no, it's, a, it's maybe a mile beyond the Dipolon Gate out of going out of Athens. So we're, we're talking about something that a, a Greek who could walk 10, 20 miles a day without feeling it, you know, they, they, you could walk up there anytime you wanted to. What's it look like now? You know, I haven't been up there. 
Someday, did I show you the pictures? I was, we were in, we, we stopped with our driver at Thermopylae. They have a terrible museum. I'm so glad I never went there before. <laughs> Completely worthless museum. But what we hadn't done before is, you know, Thermopylae, Hot Gates is so called because there are hot springs nearby, like a half mile, less. So we stopped, he, he drove us there. There were all these uh, camper vans uh, from mostly Russian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, or whatever, and these uh, somewhat out of shape uh, Slavic beauties <laughs> were, uh, you know, fairly blobby and were cavorting in the hot springs. Oh, and bikinis. Yeah, in. in <laughs> Bikinis or potato yes. sacks, you. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, it smells. It, these are. Oh, it was what makes it healthful is the hydrogen sulfide gas, which so the whole thing smells like they had 10 billion rotten <laughs> eggs. <laughs> Maybe I'll pass. Gee, isn't it too bad we didn't bring bathing suits? <laughs> Would anybody like to make a closing remark, or shall we have a glass of wine and then talk about food?